0: While fleeing Apaches, this gentleman from Virginia found a strangely shimmering cave. When he entered it, he discovered his body had somehow split in two. One form lay dead on the cave floor while the other was mystically transported through time and space to the planet Mars. Stanley presents Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter, Warlord of Mars. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 111, Battle at the Bottom of the World, The Master Assassin of Mars, Chapter 5, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 20, January 1979. Hello and welcome once again to Marvel's Cosmic Comics presented by the Comic Book Time Machine at ComicBookTimeMachine.com. I am Ben, Ben Avery, and if you are just joining us for the first time on this conversation about some wild and wacky and honestly awesome uh, comics from Marvel's 70s and 80s uh, publishing Line, I guess, of licensed comic books, then let me tell you who I am and what we're doing here. Who I am, like I said, Ben, Ben Avery. I write comics, I read comics, I collect comics, and I podcast about comics. I like comics a lot. I do not consider myself any kind of expert other than an expert in liking stuff that I like. And so that is why I podcast about stuff that I like, like what we're going to talk about today John Carter, Warlord of Mars. And so let's just get started, and we will begin this journey, which is the middle of a journey that we began a while ago. Yeah. Let's just get started. So this issue is the fifth chapter in Chris Claremont's run on John Carter, Warlord of Mars, that he is calling the Master Assassin of Mars. This is chapter five, and I just want to say, I probably should save this to the end. In fact, this is the final note that I made, but I just want to say, there are Where are the master assassins or the, I guess, where is the master assassin? I have not seen a master assassin show up in this book in a little while now. Uh, It's just been a lot of fighting and John Carter and Dejah Thoris pining for each other as they have been separated. But like I said, we will get to that. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start the cover. This cover, the cover to issue number 20 of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, is a wonderful, wonderful cover. Um, If, okay, uh, on my Swamp Monster podcast feed that I do, I talk about judging books by their covers. And for my Swamp Monster collection, a lot of what I have is... I mean, there's Man-Thing and Swamp Thing stuff and the Heap stuff that I bought because, you know, I want those stories and those are good stories. But some of the other stuff I have, especially the uh, horror anthology stuff that I have, I buy it based on maybe I've heard there's a good story in there. Maybe it's just really, really cheap. Um, like I found some really, really cheap weird war stories Um Issues recently at Tom's vintage toy store, which is two blocks away from my house, which is way too close way too close. I love you, Tom. I do. I appreciate all you do, but you tempt me. You tempt me and sometimes I cannot fight that temptation and I bought a bunch of these weird wars weird war tales is actually the the, the issue the the title of the book and the covers of these issues are usually just really fantastic and weird. And so I'll judge also then I'll buy comics because there's a cool swamp monster on the cover. And usually the story inside does not match the coolness of the cover, but I'm judging that book by its cover. And if I were to judge this issue by its cover, boy, oh boy, (laughs) I love it. Now, um, the, this is by, uh, Carmine Infantino. And Rudy Nebra's uh, inked it. And honestly, you've got John Carter, who is front and center. And OK, so I'm going to talk a little bit about composition. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not an art teacher. I've just spent a lot of time around art and spent a lot of time talking about cover artists, about uh, talking with artists about the cover of different books that I've been involved in. And a lot of what I've learned about art and what I've learned about, especially a good cover and what I've learned about, you know, and it even goes back to my you know, college art classes where I used to just make up stuff when I would, I would. We did we when we would answer questions, we would just make up stuff and just try and give the answer that it would sound like what the teacher wants. And that that art teacher, I feel so bad for him because we were so disrespectful in doing it. Because he bought it, I mean he he was like, "Yeah, yeah, and it'd just be oh, and we just after he'd turn away from us to you know have someone else answer, we'd just sit there and giggle, and our papers that we'd write for art class were so like fake, pretentious, and oh, we weren't the greatest kids, but that was college. that was a long time ago. I've changed since then, I promise anyway, um. This cover is really interesting because it has so many of these things that I've learned about like, uh, drawing the eye in and, and letting the eye, you know, guiding the eye around the page. And so front and center is John Carter, but even more directly center is this, like, um, jeweled red buckley kind of thing that is attached to his leather harness that he's wearing. And it is direct center or super close to it on the page of the cover. And it's just this red dot. So like if you squint your eyes, like that's going to, you know, that's going to stick out to you is this red dot that is on this main character and his face. He's got this, just this rage on his face and his arms are outstretched with a dagger in one arm, (laughs) a sword in the other. Um, uh, but his sword is in a backswing and it is crossing with another sword. That's in a backswing that belongs to his partner in the war. And so you have these two guys who then are, you know, pale skinned, um, uh, because this is, uh, the place where they are in this issue is not red skin, uh, Martian place. It's, it's a different place where these Martians have pale skin, like a, a Caucasian, uh, human. And, they're both fighting, you know, and so they're they're like this the, that color of blob that 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 pale skin color blob is the other you know primary thing in the center of this whole thing, and then as your eye travels around and follows their arms and follows their swords, you see just these this horde of barbarians, hairy, nasty Neanderthal looking. Barbarians who have these jagged spears and jawbones of a creature that they're fighting with. And John Carter's sword, you know, you can tell from the artwork that it just is continuing an arc. Uh, and I said he's in the backswing, he's actually the end of his swing. He's not like starting a swing. Um, but there is a fallen barbarian who's laying on the ground, his face grimacing in pain, and there is a brown splotch, not red, but brown, like splattering away from his neck. It's clearly meant to be blood, clearly not colored to be blood. Um, I don't know if it's colored that way because this is approved by the Comics Code Authority, but it's just a fantastic, fantastic, barbaric, um, brutal action cover and the question is well does the interior match the exterior And that is always the question and we will be looking at the interior now to see how well it matches up but the cover uh i mean i i would buy this based on just judging by the cover unfortunately if i was buying this by itself which I did, I did buy it by itself. I do actually have the issue in my hand, uh, which is nice because there was something in the uh, the letters page that I wanted to address that was interesting to me. But um, I have this issue in my hand and it's one of the, you know, I don't have the other ones around it. I don't have like, you know, 18 and 19 and 21 and 22 or whatever. But I have the Omnibus edition. That's my time machine for John Carter is this Omnibus edition that I have, this hardcover collection of all the Marvel John Carter Warlord of Mars comics. And so I have the other stories. But if you were just picking this up, you are getting – you're coming in in the middle of one cliffhanger and you're leaving this issue in the middle of another cliffhanger. And honestly, not much gets resolved in this issue. This would be – I would guess if you were buying this by itself – not a satisfying read as far as story goes. It might be a satisfying read as far as the artwork and that but yeah. If that's your only John Carter Warlord of Mars issue, then you do not have a very good um entry point. Let's put it that way. This is not a very good entry point into the John Carter Warlord of Mars Master Assassin of Mars storyline. So let's talk about that storyline. Um, leading up to this point, John Carter and Dejah Thoris have found themselves trapped in this underground society called Kar- Karanthor. Karanthor. Something like that. And this is different than most of the other Martian societies because, like I said, they do have these pale-skinned Martians who live there. And the males uh, grow wings. And that is one of the things that kind of proves and shows that they're a real, real man, so to speak. Also, Red Martians are there, but they are slaves. However, when the leader of the people there sees Dejah Thoris, he takes her for his own, and they are separated from each other. Now, both John Carter and Dejah Thoris are biding their time until they can find the opportunity to escape. And this issue, like I said, picks up on last month's cliffhanger, which was this huge battle with these barbarian hordes kind of thing. And so they're fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And the only reprieve really comes when John Carter just says he's had enough of this. He reveals his super strength to his friend Garthen, the other guy from the cover, grabs him and jumps away from the battle up into a tall wall, one of the, the walls surrounding the city. And he tells his friend not to reveal his powers and his friend agrees. Then they return and they are greeted as victorious by Garthen's. Father Gar Karis, who was a great warrior in his own right and the leader of the army, and there is some platitudes there about you know this is a great victory, this is great because you guys destroyed so many of these bad guys that we can easily defeat them. That ends up not being true. There is more war that needs to happen, but there's an awkward panel here as Gar Karis heaps praise on John Carter and just ignores his son. Well, after we after this happens, we find out the backstory that. Garthen would basically rather sing and he has no wings. And this is a problem. His father does not want him to be a poet and a gardener. His father wants him to be a warrior, you know, because dads want things for their kids. And also he has no wings. That's also a problem because he's not able to do the same kind of battle that his fellow warriors are able to do. So. Time goes by. There's more war. There's more fighting. John Carter enjoys the war. He enjoys the fighting, but he's still planning to escape. He plans to scale the walls of the valley above. But while he's planning, he continues to fight their war. Meanwhile, Tomar, that leader guy I was telling you about, is flaunting Dejah Thoris by his side. And John Carter is very upset about this. Very, very upset about this. We've talked about this. Before, we're going to talk a little bit more about this whole arrangement that John Carter and Dejah Thoris have as they're biding their time. But one thing leads to another. We get another awkward scene with the father where the father you know, says, if only my son chose the way of the warriors, then I would you know, accept him the way that a father accepts a son. And John Carter just can't understand this, just can't understand this. Finally, one night, Garthan sneaks into John Carter's room, which is a huge mistake because John Carter does not like people sneaking into his room when the lights are out and he almost gets killed by John Carter. But John Carter stops himself because he's smart. He's quick. He's quick on the uptake. He's a good guy. You know, he doesn't want to kill people except, you know, barbarians, but he doesn't want to kill Garthan. And so Garthan lives and tells John Carter he has an escape plan, a better escape plan than this whole rope climb thing that john carter wants to do this is a tunnel that he has found that leads to the outer world an outer world that by the way none of his people believe in but he's willing to go to this place that he doesn't even believe exists because he wants to get away with his girlfriend who is a red martian and of course his father would never approve of that so garthen and his lady love are sent on ahead by John Carter while John Carter goes to rescue Dejah Thoris. And there's a scene that's really actually re- very reminiscent of the recent Wonder Woman movie where John Carter, because the the way that this, the city is built is they are built into, uh, yes, I always get this wrong, stalactites, stalagmites. I can't remember which one's hanging and which one's growing up, but whatever the one is that's hanging, they've built their cities kind of into that because, like I said, the men have wings and the women are just going to have to walk up long staircases and across very dangerous bridges to get from place to place. But the men have wings so they can fly from place to place. And so John Carter leaps to the one where he's supposed to go to. And he, he uh, lands on the outside of it and he's climbing up and it's, it's a really cool um, visual of him, you know, using his Earthman powers to, to do this. Dejah Thoris is waiting and doing nothing. Just, laying in a bed, crying and Tomar comes in planning to take her physically, but the rape is interrupted by John Carter who finally, well, I mean, there's a big battle between John Carter and, and Tomar and John Carter struggles to even stay alive in the battle. But finally he's able to give Tomar a good sock in the jaw and knocks him down, knocks him out. And they make, they make to run away, but two guards find them. And one says, summon the night watch. And the other one says, no, we'll slay them ourselves. Blah blah blah. And that's the end of the issue. So, yeah, Uh, there's a lot, actually, as I was making notes, a lot of things that I would like to talk about. I mean, one, just starting at this cliffhanger, they kind of pull the punch by they. I mean, uh, Chris, Chris Claremont. And depending on how interwoven the Marvel method was with whoever he was working with here, which, oh, I forgot to talk about the, the credits. Chris Claremont, the writer, artist is Ernie Colon, letter is John Costanza and colorist is Bob Sharon and Pat. Pat Sampson from The Longbox Crusade. If you are listening, um, <laughs> um whenever I see John Costanza, I don't think Costanza that's just that's not stuck in my head. I think can't stand ya. Can't stand ya. Um and actually it's just funny enough, that's actually the episode of Seinfeld that I heard uh, that I I say heard because I wasn't actually watching it. But I was in the room as my wife was watching it. Uh, that was that was the episode that was on last night. So anyway, Pat, um, you mentioned in, in an episode you talked about John Costanza and how, you know, he's trying to get his name stuck in people's head. It's not the way it's stuck in my head, but his name is stuck in my head whenever I talk about John Costanza. But I always think can't stand you. So anyway. Uh, cover date was January uh, 1979, as I said before. On sale date, October 24th, 1978. I love that. It was, you know, that's just a couple, you know, a week and a half after my birthday, after my fourth birthday. Cover price, 35 cents. Editor, Roger Stern. So I feel like they pulled the punch in the cliffhanger here. And what I mean is they get caught by guards and Tomar is laying on the ground. I don't think he's dead. Because it was a mighty punch, but there's nothing said about him being dead. It's possible that he is, but I, I think that he's going to be brought back in next issue. There needs to be, you know, if they're not going to escape right away, then he needs to be a part of that the whole situation. That's my my guess. But they think he's dead. And one of them says, let's summon the night guard. And one says, no, we're going to take care of this ourselves. And I'm just looking at that panel and just thinking to myself, I mean, I, yeah, John Carter's tired. But it's John Carter and Dejah Thoris. It's two versus two. These guys are guards, and they might be great guards. They might be the best guards because they're right there where, uh, you know, Tomar's place. But they don't have a chance. Like, this is not a cliffhanger where I'm wondering, ooh, what's going to happen to John Carter and Deja Thoris? I might be wrong. They might get taken, and, and maybe the next issue is going to be about them, you know, getting captured and put in prison or whatever. Uh, but... I look at this cliffhanger and I'm thinking to myself, this is a cliffhanger for those two guards, man. Like what is going to happen to them? They are going to die. I might be wrong, but that's just my impression as I, as I see this, this cliffhanger. So going back then to Garthun and his, his father and son problem, you know, his father keeps saying things like if he chose the way of the warriors and I'm just thinking to myself, I mean, he doesn't have wings and yet of all the, the soldiers, they show him and he and John Carter, just defeat barbarian after barbarian especially in that opening battle i'm just thinking to myself if your son can totally beat up a horde of barbarians at the gates and he wants to be a gardener who cares if he doesn't choose the way of the warriors this guy is a warrior let him be a gardener while he's not beating up g- hordes of barbarians at the gates just let him uh sure, maybe he's not going to be the general that you want him to be because he's not going to take your place or something like that. And maybe that's an issue, you know, but I've always appreciated uh, my father because he was into sports. He was, uh, all state defensive football player in high school. And he, um, didn't play high school, didn't play football in college, but football was very, very important to him. And my earliest baby pictures have me holding like a football toy, a little, uh, Squeezy, squeaky, uh chew baby toy that's a little football guy who's holding a little football and it's all cute. And I had a little shirt with a little cute football guy on it who's like kicking a football and his shoes flying off. Now this is when I was what one, two, three years old. I haven't really developed my real interests yet. But um, when my interests did start developing, it was Star Wars. It was Super Friends. It was cartoons. It was science fiction. It was fantasy. And my dad never once begrudged that. And, and I even remember one time asking my dad, um, "You know, do you ever wish that I played football? Do you ever wish that I, I did those things? And I, I did. I played on a um, flag football team in junior high. I played t-ball. I played softball. I did basketball. I did sportsy kinds of things because they were fun in elementary and in junior high. And in high school, I did a church volleyball league. and I loved volleyball. That was my that was the one sport that I really felt like I could be good at because I could be I could support the people who really were good <laughs> and we could be successful. And one time we won the sportsmanship award because we came in second place. And the, the, that final match of that second where we got second place, there were two really bad calls by the ref, really bad calls. And they involved me. Both of them did. And we just had a good attitude about it. And we won the good sportsmanship award because they told us later on, yeah, those are bad calls and, but you guys didn't complain, you know, it, it was good. So, but I was never like really into sports and my dad gave the, you know, the kind of answer that, um, I've heard other people give before, but he's, you know, if, if you are a garbage man, I just want you to be the best garbage man you can be. And I'm so proud of you if you are. And if you're going to be, if you're going to play sports and you did the best you could, I'll be so proud of you. And, and he was. I mean, I was in all the drama stuff and I was in all the music stuff. And he he showed up. He was proud. He bragged the way a father should, you know, with all of his friends. And, you know, he still brags on me um, to this day because – and he brags on my sister and my brother too. I mean, he he loves us and he's proud of us and none of us followed – his footsteps in that direction. I did follow his footsteps in other directions. My dad, he was a, a pastor and, and I am as well. And he worked, he did lots of stuff with camps and I've done a lot of stuff with camps as well. And And he worked with um, men and women who were physically or mentally uh, disabled. And, and I've also gotten to disability ministry as well. And so there, I follow his footsteps in other ways. And, um, but My dad never pushed me into any of these places. He set an example for me, but he never pushed me into these things. And so my dad would not be like this guy here in this comic. And I strive myself then to not be like this guy here in this comic. And I I never want to presume that my children are going to, honestly, that my children like comic books. You know, I don't want to ever presume that I buy comics for them and they like them because I'm into them. I think they do like them because I like them, but they don't like them because I make them like them. And so... um. Yeah, this guy, bad father. Uh, this is not good parenting. You know, if you want to raise a warrior, you know, you can't force a poet to be a warrior. It's, it's just not possible. Now, one of the other things that you get in this um, kind of push-pull dynamic of, you know, being a warrior versus being a poet, aside from the fact that this guy, Garthan is good at both, I can't be stressed enough. This guy, actually, I don't even know if he's a good poet because they don't do any of his poetry. He might be the worst poetry poet there. Uh, but as a warrior he is awesome he is really good and he's able to take you know he's he's able to take John Carter's side and he stands there and he's back to back fighting these barbarian hordes and he is helping them win anyway um as John Carter and and Garthon are discussing this John Carter says something really interesting to me and really stuck out to me he says warriors on barsoom talking about his home Are a silver teepee a dozen, but a poet, and this is the part that just really stuck out to me, that Chris Claremont, nice job, but a poet, someone who creates rather than destroys is valuable beyond price. I love this idea that Chris Claremont is kind of planting here, just this idea of being someone who creates rather than destroys and, you know, being the peacemaker uh, you know, being the one who is nice to other people, you know, that's, uh, I don't know if I talked about it on this podcast. I've talked about it on a couple other podcasts, but I, I had recently had a really interesting conversation with my six year old son who was having trouble with the kids on the playground. There's these two girls who are making fun of him at this camp playground and. Everyone was staying there all week. And so he was having to face these girls every day, and he was really pulling him down. And he would get really mad at them, and, and they would say something mean. He would say something mean. Sometimes he'd say it first, sometimes they'd say it first. But I just said to him, and, and it's, it fits here, you know, <laughs> being nice is harder than being mean. It is harder. To be nice to people who are being mean to you. It is harder to be nice to people who aren't being mean to you, too, but it is easier to be mean. It is easier to just react and not to stop yourself and have self-control and so i had this whole long conversation with him and tried to equip him with some phrases that he could use so he's being nice to them instead of being mean to them and it kind of worked he he tried he's six you know and he's still working through a whole lot of issues um just as a six-year-old as far as like learning not to be scared about things and learning how to actually you know be nice to his brothers and sisters and. But he tried and he actually like he could tell he heard what I said and I was really proud of him. So here I'm bragging on my kids now. OK, so anyway, um, that that phrase that John Carter used in this comic just really stuck out to me. Uh, OK, I've got two more things and one is more serious than the other. And so I'm going to go with the serious one first. And that is this whole Dejah Thoris subplot here. Up until this issue, I get the impression that she's kind of going through the motions with Tomar and she's got a plan you know and 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 she never actually tells John Carter what her plan is but the implication is the plan is we are going to survive here until we can leave together and John Carter was actually getting jealous of her because she was acting like she enjoyed being at Tomar's side here in this issue suddenly she's this waiting damsel like i said she seemed to have a plan but now in this issue her plan here just seems to be to wait and cry until the man comes and rescues her and, and when he finally does rescue her, it's like, she, oh, you saved me, and she's like running into his arms, and I don't mind her running into his arms. They love each other. They are a great couple. They really do love each other, and everything he does, he does for her, but she does the same thing for him, and she is a match for him. Now she may not be physically a match for him. Like if they were, you know, to have like a a weightlifting contest or something. I mean, he would he would win against anyone who lives on on Mars because he's got earthman strength. But she is a strong strong character and she joins him in battle and she holds her own in battle and she's right by his side. They are a match for each other. And here in this issue, she is just I mean the artwork where she is waiting, and she's just laying in bed. She, she doesn't know he's coming, but she's just laying in in bed, and she's just got this weepy, mopey expression on her face as she's like lounging on this bed, like a preteen schoolgirl who's uh, pining away over some cute high school boy or something. I mean, it's it's bad, and I don't like it. And there's, I mean, you could explain it away. I mean, the intention might be that she's just been violated so much over so long a period of time that while she may have had resolve at the beginning, the resolve has just melted away until now. She just has no will. And I guess I can almost accept that. I mean, that's it seems like not necessarily a great, you know, character building choice to make for the story, but I guess would be an understandable thing. I mean, terrible things are happening to her. I mean, whether or not she is playing along so that she can live or it's being taken forcefully, these are bad things that are happening to her, and they're going to take their toll, I guess. But the way the, – I mean, the story doesn't have to be crafted that way, and if that's what the story was meant to show, I guess – it is its thing but it just harms my view of the character in the story up until this point she's been a great strong character now the whole wardrobe thing is something we can talk about you know it's the whole idea that on mars you know people don't wear many clothes and that kind of thing and and that's understandable and and everyone talks about how you know you know in fantasy you know it's part of the culture that they dress this way blah 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 and the, the problem is that that's usually an excuse to draw them in a sexualized way especially the women. But I mean, you know, it's a double standard. The men do, you know, like John Carter is not wearing much in this. I just don't notice it as much being, um, heterosexual male. But anyway, this turn for her character in this issue, it felt like her plan is I'm going to wait and cry until John Carter figures something out. She should be waiting for him with her own plan. And then he comes and says, oh, wait, but Garth has this really good plan over here. I had my plan. You have your plan, but we're going to do Garth's plan because it's better. Let's let's go. He knows what's going on. He knows the score. He lives here. He found this tunnel. It's awesome. Let's go. And she doesn't help in the battle. She just kind of stands by the sidelines. And this issue, it just, it harms my view of the character in this story. I still would hold her up as an example for a very strong female her- hero. But, I would this issue goes against goes against that. So that's the serious one. I got to get that out of the way because up until this point, it wasn't like that. Um, he was still the main character and he was still the main mover of the story. His name is the title you know, of the book. And a lot of times he's he's going away and he's he's away from her. But whenever she's been a part of his, his story, she's been an active part of his story until this issue and maybe there's some other times that i'm not remembering but this is the one this really just sticks out to me the other one is as he punches out thorin or Torin or whatever the jerk's name is um in the narration and i i got at my notes but I, i'm gonna read the whole thing um my first punch winded him that's great And it says, my second, as Abner Doubleday would say, knocked him out of the park. And I'm just wondering, really? Really? Abner Doubleday would have said that? Knocked it out of the park? I just have a hard time feeling like that's an actual phrase that Abner Doubleday would have used. I might be wrong. Like I said, I'm not totally into sports. I'm into sports enough to know Abner Doubleday was some Civil War guy who they think might have created baseball or might have been credited as created baseball or um. I don't think he did create baseball. I'm pretty sure he didn't create baseball, but I don't know because I'm not a, you know, Daniel Butcher, if you're out there, let me know. Did Abner Doubleday create baseball? I don't think he did, but I think people say he did. Anyway, Civil War, 1800s. Are they going to be using phrases like knocked it out of the park like an announcer would use? Because I don't know that they actually had, you know, announcers in times you know, like before 1900. I I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an expert. It just felt like a really forced reference, honestly, is what it felt like. Now, Civil War era, John Carter is Civil War era uh, gentleman. He's a soldier. He's a he's a Confederate soldier, you know? And But, yeah. So, just a note about the art. I don't want to harp on the art too much, but it just, it just doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. And I said there's something in the letters page about the art. And, <clears throat> um, what they say is if you went for Ernie Collins art on Carter 16 they're, they're responding to a, a letter where they said that the comic was great and he loved the art by Colin and debris if you went for Ernie Collins art on, on Carter number 16 then how about this issue we're trying to experiment here reproducing Ernie's art directly from the pencils without any inks we're very much interested in your reactions let us hear them huh my reaction is it's it's not great it's not and i don't know i'm curious what the technical process was where they were going from pencils and and not from inks um because everything i know about these older printing processes is that they needed that dark uh ink color for for the copying and printing but i i do remember when um when we did The Hedge Knight, the first uh, George Martin book that I worked on, um, Mike Miller had an inker. But when they did The Sworn Sword and the one that just came out, actually, um, they he did not use an inker. He he scanned in his pencils directly and then digitally inked them. So I know that's a thing You know, that happened in the last you know, 10, 15 years as far as uh, digital inking and that kind of thing. But. I'm curious what the process is here, but it did not fix things, and I thought maybe the problem that I had with Ernie Colon's art earlier was maybe it's a bad mix of Penciler and Inker, and here I see it's not. It's not a bad mix of Penciler and Inker. There might be another problem that um, has caused this to be an issue, but yeah, I just I just don't go for the art here. I just don't, but all things considered, Chapter 5 of The Master Assassin of Mars, good stuff, good stuff so from here we're going to go into ben's bullpen bulletin and so in the next segment we'll be taking a look at the interiors of the books as far as ads and um and and text pages and all that kind of thing so that's uh that's coming up next Beyond that, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this experience for me. I would love to hear from you. I've heard from a couple different people recently, which is really, really nice. uh, But I'd love to hear more. And especially if I'm talking about some comic books that that you enjoy or some comic books that you've read and hate. I do want to hear from you. I also want to remind you that on the Comic Book Time Machine podcast on the regular feed, we talk about other kinds of comics, not just the Marvel's Cosmic Comics. So you can go there at ComicBookTimeMachine.com. You can look up Comic Book Time Machine on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is that you do your podcasts on. And then the other thing is I'm starting a new feed. I mentioned the Swamp Monster thing, but I've done a couple Swamp Monster episodes in the main feed. And now, as I turn around and I'm doing the third one, it is going to become its own feed. So, if you enjoyed those, then I invite you to join me over there as well. Like I said, thank you for listening. Thank you for spending this time with me. And Godspeed. Next episode, Ben's Bullpen Bulletin, taking a look inside the pages of Marvel's comic books, cover date of January 1979. Be there. One of the ads talks about NBC.
1: I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on an Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of s*** about the way he acted (laughs)
0: Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just
1: completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones, as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up like he said, he he murders these people. And that's that's not my
0: DC comics. That's not super heroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story this story is it's it's not bad, it's not great, it's it's like the character himself, it's like he's just it's just there. It just exists.
1: Ben Avery as we discuss the secret six. So when I read this alone as
0: I was reading through this this issue, I'm thinking what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm gonna like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret six more. This is the introduction and without this, you know I probably wouldn't like you know the, the second chapter as much.
1: Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead man <laughs> well, it's it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a Dead Man story. It starts to be a Dead Man story.
0: It forgets it's a Dead Man story. And then it comes back to being one. Um, all
1: in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton as we discuss Black Hawk. That there's sort of this era of Black Hawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm-hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey, as we discuss Superman, there is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels and many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast, coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details.